So guys, we, we're busy with the, the Life of Moses uh, series, and by busy, I mean we are ending it pretty much this evening. Um, so, so today, we are talking about the death of Moses as we finish the life of Moses. So it's, it's sort of a logical conclusion, one would think. And uh, I want to start off by reading this, this passage that comes from the book of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 34. And it's, it's sort of a summary on, on, on the life of, of, of Moses to, to a certain degree. So this is, this is the, final, the final scene. So this is Deuteronomy 34 from verse 1. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab and to, to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim, Manasseh, all the land of Judah, as far as the Western Sea, the Negev and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your own eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Beor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His, eyes were, his eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. And for all the mighty powers and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So Moses is, uh, it, it's the end of his life. The 40 years in the wilderness is pretty much done. And they are stationed on this hill, which would be in modern day Jordan. And they look over the Dead Sea, um, and you can see a little stretch of the Jordan River, and they, they look into modern-day Israel, or actually the West Bank, modern-day Palestine. And, you know, I've been there, and it, it's really not that appealing. Uh, it's, it's pretty much a desert that they are looking into. But at least there's a Jordan River, and you can see the oasis of Jericho there on the side. So uh, if you've been uh, running around the wilderness for 40 years, then Jericho, I'm sure, you know, looks like Sun City. And uh, they're very excited to take the Promised Land, but, but Moses is not allowed to go into the Promised Land. He is supposed to... To, to die, and, and that is what happens. He dies in this very mysterious way. And then you've got this closing statement that there's never been a prophet like Moses. Moses is the best we've had, and never again has, has God moved in this dramatic fashion that he did when he liberated his people from, from Egypt. So Moses becomes, in the imagination of all Hebrews, almost this paradigmatic character of when God moved most, when, when, when God made this or was busy with this great salvific act, that is when, what, what Moses is associated with. All right. And then, like I said, his life ends 
rather unclimactically in the sense, anticlimactically, in the sense that uh, he's not allowed to enter the promised land. All right, now let's just park that there. When I've, I've used sporting analogies in here before and it's never worked, but I'm, I'm just gonna keep trying till it works. So uh, I, I grew up uh, and, and my dad used to tell me stories of the great cricketers of the 1970s. And you, you had these cricketers that almost had a mythic status in my mind. So he would tell me about Graham Pollock and Barry Richards, and Graham Pollock, who was just this very classy left-handed batsman, and he was notoriously lazy. He didn't want to run between the wickets, so he would just hit boundaries all the time. And the only time that he would run between the wickets is the last ball of the over so that he can keep strike at the other end. And then Barry Richards, was just a freak of nature. And uh, because of apartheid, we were robbed of his and, and most of Pollock's talent as well. But he played county cricket in England. And apparently, he would uh, get bored halfway through his innings and bat with the edge of his bat. He would turn his bat around and then bat with the edge and still make 100 or so. And, and these guys were just, were, just, were just freaks. And then you had Mike Proctor, who uh, uh, famously bowled off the right leg, which if you know anything about cricket is actually the wrong leg to, to bowl off of, but, but again, prolific. And all of these names, you know, I, I had books when I was supposed to do homework or math, then I would just read up about these guys. And, uh, and then the 1990s came and we were allowed back into international cricket but it wasn't the same. You know, the guys tried, but Hansi Kronier and Kepler Vessels, I mean, they, they weren't these legends of the game that, uh, that, that we had in Pollock and Barry Richards. But then in the late 20, in the late 2000s, uh, 2007, 2008, people were starting to get very excited because you had a batch of players and all of a sudden you heard rumors that, ah, you know, we, we, have, we, we have a team that is, that is almost as good or perhaps even better than the team of, of the 70s. And they started comparing this guy called Jock Cullis with the likes of uh, Graham Pollock. And they would say, there's this young kid, A.B. de Villiers, and he's, he's just got that, um, the, the audacity and the talent that the Barry Richards had. And you've got guys like Dale Stain, and he's the new Mike Proctor. And you have guys like uh, Hashim Amla, who's, who's, who's just really dominating at the crease. And for a very long time, despite the fact that we can't win the World Cup and we, we can just give up on that, uh, no amount of prayer is gonna change that. I've tried, uh, but... Uh, but we, we did dominate test cricket and um, a, a lot of formats of cricket for, for, for a very long time. Now, I am, I'm saying this because at the end of Moses' life, we just read this passage and it says he knew God face to face and, uh, and, and there were all of these miracles and it was just such a beautiful time. But never has there ever been someone like Moses again. And if you listen carefully... You can, you can hear a very silent Hebrew drum roll that runs through uh, all of scripture. We haven't seen a prophet like this again. And I think if you were a young Jewish boy, you would not think of uh, Graham Pollock or some of these other great cricketers. But if you played games you know, outside of synagogue or, or, uh, or whatever, then... I'm pretty sure, you know, you would be, I'm Moses, okay, I'm Aaron, okay, you're Pharaoh, oh, okay. Um, and, you know, they, they, would, they would play these, these games, that would be part of their imagination. And, and they would also be excited about 
the prospect of God acting again as he acted in the life of Moses. So it's very silent. People are not hearing from God. The prophet, there's, there's, there's very little going on. I'm obviously skipping a massive bit of history. But then there is a, a man, uh, actually a boy that is born in, 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 in Galilee. And everything surrounding his life is strangely familiar. So for example, when he is born, it, is, it happens in very unsavory conditions, in the sense that he's, he's born in a, in, in a crib, which is basically a, a feeding, do you, do you say a feeding throw? Trough, I always mess it up. Um, a, what we call in, in English a feeding back, um, a big buck, uh, and, and then uh, in, instead of having, you know, like my, my, my Eben was now born, what was it, yesterday, um, I can actually make that joke. Oh, were you born yesterday? Um, but, uh, and, and, and he's just surrounded with so many medical professionals and tubes and, and what's name. But when Jesus was born, he was surrounded mostly by animals, okay? And, uh, and then you have this figure in the Old Testament when, when he was born, he sort of drifted in this basket on the Nile River, equally unsavory. And, you know, you can, you, all, of the, all of the heaven is just holding its breath um, when, when, when Moses is going down and when Jesus is born. All right. But then you also have this tyrant, this tyrant called uh, King Herod, who is, is jealous of Jesus and he wants to kill all of the infants in Bethlehem. Why does that sound familiar? Ah, all right, Moses, when, when he was born, that was a time when Pharaoh was deciding that he needed to kill all of the infants in, um, in, in, in Egypt. All right. And now the story, but it doesn't stop there, it, it continues. You see, why is Moses in Egypt to begin with? Well, there was a guy called Joseph, and this Joseph was you know, sold into slavery, eventually he ends up in Egypt, and he has a dream, and that dream is the reason why all of Israel is now in, in Egypt. Interesting, there's a guy called Joseph, Jesus' dad, he has a dream that they need to run away from Herod, and now they are escaping to Egypt. Can you see how these things are talking to each other? So the Joseph of the New Testament, he has a dream, they need to go to Egypt. The Joseph of the Old Testament, he has a dream, and, and, and that's the reason why Israel is in, in Egypt to, to begin with. Then um, this, this, this person, Jesus, is, is somehow a bridge between two peoples. He he let go of his royal life that he had with God within the Trinity. And he, he does that because he wants to save slaves. Why does that sound so familiar? Because Moses, you know, gave up his royal palace suite and, and he was about to save the, uh, the Israelites or at least be part of that. Then you have Moses going through the, the Red Sea, this very pivotal moment in the history of Israel. While Jesus, in, in his ministry, he is a guy who, uh, before he, he goes into public ministry, he goes through the Jordan River as a baptism, and he calls us to all go through the river as well. So you can see these parallels over and over again. When, uh, when Jesus has his first miracle, what was his first miracle? Can anybody tell me? Turning water into wine. Why is that familiar? 
Well, Moses' first miracle was turning water into blood, turning the Nile red. All right. Then Jesus, shortly after, uh, um, you know, there's this first miracle. He goes up a mountain, and Matthew and some of the other um, gospel writers are very clear that he went up a mountain, he sat down, and he taught them. And he didn't just teach them. In Matthew, his teachings are grouped into five little discourses. Why? Because they are trying to say this is, these are the five um, books of Moses. Just in the same way that the new, this is the new law of, of Jesus, the five books of Moses. So you have the five discourses at the Sermon on the Mount. When he comes down the mountain, he chooses his 12 disciples, which is supposed to imitate the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, not long after that, uh, he feeds the multitude. But just before that, it says, and he went into a desolate place. All right, now in Galilee is not necessarily a desert, but the gospel writers are trying to make a point. Ah, he is in a desert of sorts, and there in the desert of sorts, he is feeding the masses. And uh, he's tested in the wilderness for 40 days. He intercedes on behalf of the people. And I think any person reading the story of Jesus would just pick up, my goodness, this is indeed a second Moses. Now, I want to pick up the story in Mark 9 and uh, just see if we can pick up any other parallels. So in Mark 9, we can read from, uh, is it verse 2? Yeah. This is the famous story of the transfiguration. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what he was saying, <laughs> for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but just Jesus only. All right, what a bizarre story. Where do you think we have to go to try and make sense of this story? Moses, all right, spoiler alert. I mean, most of you guys should have, should have guessed that. So in, in Exodus, we have this, uh, there are actually two stories that I think run parallel to this story, and it's going to illuminate it pun intended, um, a little bit more. So in, in Exodus 24, from verse 15, we read, uh, Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. I also just want to read a short passage from um, Exodus 34, uh, which is from verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin on his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Okay. So, so what's going on? You've got a mountain in the Old Testament with Moses. You've got a mountain here in this uh, Mark, uh, Mark 9 account, 
all right? Then there's something interesting. In verse, in verse 16 of, of is, is it the Mark and account, it says, and on the seventh day, they went up the mountain. In, in the Exodus account that we just read, it said, and after six days, they went up. So again, we have the seven days, okay? So it's, it's, it, it's um, undeniable that Mark has this, this account um, in the back of his mind, all right? God appears in, in glory, which, uh, which is undeniable in both these accounts. And then you have Peter, who makes a very strange request. He asks God, can we make tents? Um, can I make a tent for you, for Elijah, and for Moses? And it says uh, he was very sleepy and he didn't quite know what he was, what he was saying. Now, I can kind of identify with Peter here um, just because I've never been able to survive an IMAX for longer than 10 minutes. I just find the glory of the IMAX too much and I fall asleep just within 10 or 15 minutes. That's really how it is. And then my wife is usually very annoyed with me. And then she would wake me up and say, you want it? And I said, no, 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 it's nice to be here. Do you want a tent? But she, she never gets, gets the joke. So uh, the, wh why is Peter making this rather strange request? Why is he now so excited about camping with Elijah and Moses and Jesus on top of this mountain? What is going on? It's actually not such a stupid request from Peter's side. Because here's the thing. If you can re continue reading in the Exodus account, then you will know that as God is talking to Moses, he is also about to give them instructions in terms of how the tabernacle should be built. What is the tabernacle? That is the place where God is going to dwell with his people and move with them through the desert, all right? That is where God's holiness will, will dwell. The fact of the matter is that people are terrified of God. So they send Moses, say, well, we're not going to go up, up the mountain. Moses, you go. And if you live, then you know, tell us what he said. And, uh, but we're going we're to stay down here. It's, 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 just, it's just much, much safer. So, so the tabernacle is this place where God's glory is supposed to dwell. So what is, what, what, what is Peter saying? He realizes, oh my goodness, we are here in the presence of God. This is deadly. This is dangerous. We need to build tents. The tents, he doesn't say, and for me, and for James and John, and by the way, we can share. Uh, he doesn't say that. The tents are just for those three because God's glory is coming from it. And usually that means death for anybody who's near to that. It's, it's too much. God's, God's presence, his nature is just too much to bear, it would seem. And, and then what happens? Moses disappears, Elijah disappears. It's a very mystical story, isn't it? And then you just have Jesus and the three disciples left on the mountain. And then they go down the mountain. They move down the mountain and they talk a little bit about what just happened. There are a couple of other interesting things that happens there. The first one, or at least another one is, in both accounts, I didn't read it now, but you have assistants that, that went with Moses up the hill as well. So Joshua went up with him, Aaron and his two sons went up with him as well. So Jesus has these assistants going up with him. But the other thing that is interesting, if you read the Lucan version of this, then what you will note is that what, what Elijah and Moses were talking to Jesus about is his coming departure. And what do you think is the Greek for that word, departure? Exodus. They were talking about his coming exodus. Exodus was on the way, his exodus to Jerusalem. So now it is, it is so obvious 
that what Jesus is doing is he is the new Moses. So, so that excitement that we had in our drum roll, that, that excitement that kids had associating God's great movement in Moses, this is a similar moment. This is God liberating his people. Here's a new exodus about to happen. Are you guys with me? Do you see this link that, that they would have picked up on? But there are a couple of other things that also happens. When Jesus goes down the mountain, then the very next story, in almost all of the, the Gospels, they are fighting with the Pharisees at the bottom because they're struggling to, with the demon-possessed boy. So it's a bit of chaos at the bottom of the mountain. What happens when Moses comes down the mountain? Well, chaos. They are worshipping a golden calf. All right. So, so this, these stories are just beautifully crafted to mimic one another so that these, this Jewish audience would pick up, oh my goodness, it's not, it's not saying in this, in this very, you know what's, what, what I sometimes find annoying is that a lot of people would say, um, especially Muslims or Jehovah's Witnesses or you know, people within that, that line of reasoning would say, where does God say, where does Jesus say, I am God? Then I can believe in it if he says, I am God. But the Bible doesn't work like that. It's not interested to answer your questions. It is, it is trying to, you have to put yourself in the shoes of these first century Jews and, and try and understand how they would have made sense of, of what is going on. So they would have noticed that, no, goodness, this is really a prophet. So something big is, is about to happen. But there's something else that you need to notice. Jesus is not just another Moses. He is one that is more than Moses. Why? Well, one of the reasons is when... When Jesus, when, when Moses went up the mountain, he came down and he says, thus saith the Lord. Just go read the Sermon on the Mount again. What does Jesus say repeatedly? You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you. Can you see the difference? This is not just some guy who's delivering a message. He, and, and then the people say, oh my goodness, doesn't he speak with so much authority? Because he's, he's different than Moses. He's, he's, he's not just a messenger. And you can see it in this account that we read on the mountain. Why? Because when Moses went up and he came down, he was a little bit uh, maybe offended because people were scared of him. He didn't realize that his face was shining. But he was reflecting God's presence. So his light was, was his face was shining. Much like when it's full moon, as far as I understand, it is reflecting the sun's light. Is that correct? Thank you. Should have checked that up before. But I had a boy recently, and I'm going to use that as an excuse for another week or so for a lot of things. Um, so, uh, so, 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 so when, the, when the moon shines, it's not shining by its, through its own nature. It is just reflecting the sun. But here, if you also read some of the other uh, chapters, it says, and... Um, and Jesus was shining like the sun. He is the source of light. He's not just reflecting the light. He is the very source of light. He is not just a new Moses. He is, he is bigger than Moses. <sighs> Eventually, Elijah is gone. Moses is gone. And it's just Jesus left with them. My friends, the presence of God was something that was was confined to particular spaces. It was confined to the top of the mountain. It was confined to the tabernacle. 
was a confined presence because it was, it, it, it was just something that humans couldn't handle. And, and what happens now, instead of that presence being staying there on top of this mountain, we read that Jesus and the three disciples walked down the mountain, which is another way of saying that that presence went down the mountain with them. You see, in the Old Testament, in the life of Moses, God revealed himself systematically. He revealed himself in the fire on, the, on, on, on Mount Sinai, eventually in the tabernacle, eventually in the temple, in the, the Holy of Holies. But now, God's glory rests fully in the person of Jesus. And that is why when John starts his gospel, he says, Jesus in the beginning was God and, and he became flesh and he tabernacled among us. He tainted among us. What does that mean? It means that his, God's presence was fully present in the person of, of Jesus Christ. And now Jesus wants to share that glory with us. And the thing that he's talking to Elijah and Moses about is that he's talking about his exodus. And for him to share that glory with us, he is going to lose that glory. On the cross, he's going to lose that glory. But for the express purpose, so that we can, that we can have it. Friends, the Bible is not telling different stories. You might, you might think that you've got the story of Moses and you've got the story of Adam and Eve and you've got the story of Abraham and Daniel and David. You don't have different stories. The Bible does not tell different stories. It tells a single story in different ways over and over again. And, and I just have to agree with those, those Emmaus disciples when when they are journeying with this man, they don't know it's Jesus. And then eventually Jesus starts to explain how Moses and the prophets were all talking about him. And then when Jesus has disappeared, they tell each other, weren't our hearts ablaze inside of us? Weren't our hearts on fire when he showed all of these connections? And friends, I, for me, the Bible really comes alive when you see how these stories are just repeating itself and how the one is speaking to the other and how this, this very beautiful Hebrew drum roll finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus. He is the new Moses, but he is bigger than Moses. Where Moses had to take us away from slavery out of Egypt, Jesus is going to take us away from, he's going to defeat slavery, um, but, but there's a slavery of sin and the slavery of death. This is a bigger exodus that is about to happen. And when you see these things, I think scripture just comes alive. And we are invited to enter this story. So, friends, we stopped. Uh, the life of Moses stops outside of the promised land. But here's another nugget that, that I find very interesting. He's not allowed to enter the promised land. And it just seems so unfair. Everything that he went through. Why, why, why? But who is allowed to go into the promised land? Who's the new leader? Joshua. Joshua is the guy who takes them into the, the, the promised land. And friends, Joshua is just a transliteration of the word Yeshua. So who's the one that takes us into the promised land? 
It's Jesus. So his, Jesus is the Aramaic or the Greek version of Joshua. So the one who takes us into the promised land is, is Jesus. And we need to enter that story and we need to allow that story to work on our hearts because here's, here's I think, how it goes. When we come together, and I know it's a strange way to maybe spend the weekend and it's a strange way to, uh, to spend the Sunday for some, but when we come together and we worship, and when we come together in cell groups and we, we try and study the, the scriptures, and when we come together and we try to, to look at God and we allow it to change us, there is something beautiful that happens in that whole, whole process. This is how Paul reflects on it in 2 Corinthians 3 uh, from verse 18. He says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let me just read it one more time. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We do church we 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 look at god we look at this beautiful story and we allow it to transform us we effectively ascend the mountain and we look at god and we look at jesus and we allow this transformation to take place but there is another important thing that we have to remember and that is we need to go down the mountain sometimes christians get stuck on the mountain and their faces shine, but just for themselves. And, and, and that sort of defeats the purpose. You're not supposed to just have your face shine so that you can see other people's faces shine. Um, and there you can you know, sing hallelujah you know, uh, as, as for, for, for as long as you want. Eventually, you have to come down the mountain and you have to enter the mess that is this world. But it is such a beautiful image we spend time with God, we look into his glory, we are transformed by that in the process, and then we have to go out into this world, down the mountain, and we have to share that light with other people. And sometimes that light diminishes a little bit, then we have to go up the mountain, you know, so to speak. We have to, again, look at God's glory, but the more we do it, the more this transforming uh, this transformative process takes place. But it's not something that we can just keep to ourselves. It is something that we have to share at the bottom of the mountain. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for this wonderful story. The story that just beautifully connects. And sometimes we think that there's this massive disconnect between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Um, uh, we want to thank you this evening for, for showing us just the wonderful harmony that exists in Scripture. And Lord, as, as we try to make sense of it, as we look into this, I pray that we will experience something of that, that glory, something of your glory. And that it would just ignite a passion in our hearts. And that our, fail, that our faces will be, will, be, will be bright 
and that it'll be something that we want to share with other people. We go down the mountain and share your light with others. Well, Jesus, thank you that you are the God who didn't hold on to your heavenly throne, but you came down to save us. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't hold on to the glory that you had, but that you lost it all so that we could have it. Thank you for that, Lord. And I pray that the more we think about it, the more we contemplate it, the more we sing about it, the more we talk about it, the more we read about it, the more we act on the gospel, that we will be able to be transformed just a little bit more into your likeness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.